Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. The following podcast contains references to sexual violence and suicide that may be disturbing to some listeners. It's the 8th of October 1925 and after six weeks in custody, Audrey Campbell Jacob is about to stand trial in Perth's criminal court. Reporters from all the city's newspapers are there, as are correspondents from the eastern states, with readers across Australia hanging on every word published about this fascinating young femme fatale. Justice Northmore's associate reads the charge against Audrey that, on the 27th of August 1925, she willfully murdered Cyril Gidley. He then asks, Are you guilty or not guilty? In a firm, even voice, Audrey replies, Not guilty. The accused takes a seat beside a policewoman, trembling at the fate that may await her. If Audrey is found guilty, she will be sentenced to hang. While there's every chance such a punishment would be commuted, the prospect of life behind bars is appalling for a 20-year-old girl who's supposed to be in the prime of her life. I'm Michael Adams and this is the second and final instalment in the Forgotten Australia episode, Murder on the Dance Floor. As the trial began that spring Thursday, Prosecutor Hubert Parker set out the Crown's case plainly, citing facts that were clearly not in any dispute. Those were that at around 1.30am at the St John of God charity dance in the Government House ballroom, Audrey Jacob had raised a revolver and shot Cyril Gidley in the chest, causing him to die a few minutes later from massive blood loss. 
Several witnesses were called to repeat evidence they had given at the inquest. They included Audrey's friend, Annie Humphreys, who had gone to the ball with the accused that night. Maud Mitchell, who was dancing with Cyril when Audrey shot him. Dr Sidney O'Neill, who tended to the dying man, and the policeman who'd taken Audrey into custody. William Murphy, Cyril's friend, also testified, but as Arthur Haynes, Audrey's defence lawyer, had predicted at the inquest, reference was not made to the letter that Cyril Gidley had written in which he had said that Audrey had threatened his life. But having that letter ruled inadmissible was just the start of an extraordinary defence. When Arthur Haynes addressed the court, this smooth legal eagle tried to turn the prosecution's case upside down and inside out. To do this, he repeated at length the allegations that Audrey's parents had made against Cyril during the inquest. Cyril, he told the jury, was a Lothario of the sea, a smuggler and a cold calculating schemer. This was a man, he said, who had a collection of engagement rings. His wicked game was to give these to poor women before cruelly breaking off engagements and tricking them into returning the rings. Cyril had done this just before he met Audrey and convinced her to end things with her fiancé and marry him. To ensure her parents didn't get in his way, he'd made up lies about her father Edward being a philanderer in order to poison the mind of Audrey's mother, Jessie. Having split up her parents, Cyril then tried to turn Audrey's family home into a smuggling den. A sadistic brute, he'd treated Audrey badly, threatening to kill her if she ever left him. He'd also raped her, made her leave the family home to be with him in Perth, and then begun a campaign of lying and threatening letters to make her mother think he didn't know where Audrey was. Cyril, Haynes claimed, had also issued death threats against Audrey's father. Then, in an abrupt about-face, Cyril had announced he was joining the Freemasons and that they wouldn't tolerate him being engaged to a girl who lived away from her parents. So Cyril had decreed that Audrey would have to move home and he'd publicly broken off their engagement while insisting it continue secretly. Cyril was such a cad that while at the beach, he'd coaxed Audrey into slipping off her engagement ring and had then thrown it into the sea. But through it all, Audrey had remained deeply in love with Cyril. Why? Haynes explained it this way, quote, It always happens that when a girl is deeply in love with a man, she only sees his good points and smooths the bad ones over. After all, she is only a girl. Audrey's mother, Jessie, wasn't only a girl, but she too had been under Cyril's spell. Despite everything, she somehow believed he was a good man, which partly explained why, behind her husband's back, she'd arranged for her daughter to go out on dates with Cyril. Moving on to the events preceding Cyril's death, Arthur Haynes claimed Audrey had seen him on good terms twice, the last time on the 16th of August. 
Yet Audrey's diary and letters Cyril had written to her had been stolen from her flat that very day. Haynes asked, Who was there who had anything to gain by stealing the letters? The question, he said, answered itself, by which he meant Cyril. Even to jury members listening dispassionately, some of smooth-talking Haynes' claims had to seem contradictory in his attempt to make Cyril sound sinister and Audrey an innocent dupe. But those claims were nothing compared with Haynes' explanation of how Audrey could have shot Cyril dead in front of hundreds of witnesses and yet be not guilty of murder. At the dance, he said, Audrey had been bewildered and heartbroken to see her secret fiancé Cyril out with another woman when he told her he was sailing for Singapore. Quote, She was astonished to see him present and came to the conclusion that he intended to turn her down. Audrey was even more devastated that Cyril didn't just repeatedly snub her, but that he kept looking at her and laughing mockingly. At midnight, Haynes told the court, Audrey could take no more. So she left the ball, intending to go home and put herself to bed. But in her bedroom in Surrey Chambers, Audrey's eyes had fallen upon the revolver she kept in a drawer. That was when Audrey decided to commit suicide. But she wouldn't kill herself while still dressed as a clown. That outfit suggested all the merriment she didn't feel. So Audrey changed into her peacock blue dress, wrapped her revolver in a handkerchief and set out for the river where she would take her life. But on the way, Audrey passed by Perth's Catholic Cathedral and went into its grounds. Audrey kneeled in the grass, saying her rosary, counting her prayers on her rosary beads, while holding her revolver in her other hand. Then came the miracle. God's grace calmed Audrey's troubled soul. She felt a sense of peace, and she no longer wanted to kill herself. Instead, Audrey decided to go home and go to bed. But Walking back to Surrey Chambers, her route took her past Government House. Hearing the music, seeing the lights, it made her want to see Cyril. Filled with God's grace, Audrey no longer bore him any malice. She no longer harboured any anger. All she wanted to do as she walked back into the ball in her blue dress was to ask Cyril what was the matter. Inside the ballroom, Audrey saw Annie and her gentleman friends, chatted to them and went to the balcony where she asked Annie to pass a message to Cyril saying she wanted to talk to him. When Cyril didn't come to her, she went to him on the dance floor and tapped him on the shoulder so they could talk. But when he turned and said, pardon me but I'm dancing, Audrey was so taken aback by his abrupt manner that she raised her hand inadvertently. Arthur Haynes put it this way, Quote, something snapped in her brain. She lifted her hand to her eyes and in doing so must have gripped the revolver she held as it immediately exploded. Cyril's shock at having been shot 
was matched by Audrey's shock at having shot him. That was because, Haynes said, Audrey had totally forgotten that she had the revolver in her hand wrapped in her handkerchief. She wasn't angry with Cyril. There was no motive. She didn't even know she still had the gun. So there was no intent, no guilty mind. Boiled down, Haynes's defence of Audrey was this. While Cyril was thoroughly deserving of being shot, he had nevertheless been the victim of nothing more than a tragic shooting accident. And if physical evidence was needed, well, Haynes produced the silk handkerchief in which Audrey's gun had been wrapped. This handkerchief had not been mentioned in the inquest, had not been reported as found on Audrey by the police, had not been described previously by any witness. But to show Cyril's death had been caused just the way he'd described, Haynes pointed to a hole near one corner of the handkerchief and a ragged edge along part of one side. This, he said, was bullet damage, though, regrettably, gunpowder marks left by the revolver had disappeared because the handkerchief had been washed while his client was in prison. Audrey Jacob now took the stand to repeat the story the court had just heard. As Haynes tried to elicit from her tales of Cyril's cattishness, the judge told him that the dead man's character was irrelevant. But Haynes protested, saying that for the jury to understand Audrey's mental state, they had to hear what Cyril had put her through. Continually risking and frequently receiving the judge's censure, Haynes pressed ahead so the court heard Audrey's version of Cyril's many sins, her telling in exact accordance with what he had already outlined. Haynes asked her about her diary. This was the journal that Audrey's friend, Annie Humphreys, had testified about during the inquest, saying Audrey had told her it contained the names of people who wouldn't want it made public. But now Audrey claimed there was nothing in the diary that Cyril or anybody else was not at liberty to read. She had nothing to hide. Haynes led Audrey by saying of Cyril, quote, He was a cruel man. Can you explain his conduct? Audrey replied, It is very hard to explain what kind of a person he was. He was the living embodiment of the Sheik, to put it shortly. The Sheik was the woman-kidnapping, rape-inclined anti-hero made a romantic icon by Rudolf Valentino in the 1921 film of the same name. Mention of it caused the judge to digress. He lamented, I have heard that the pictures are responsible for a good deal. Haynes was eager to agree. I have heard of a lady who went to see that picture 28 times. While this was merely an aside, it also echoed Audrey's defence case. That was, she hadn't been able to help herself when faced with a bad boy. Describing the moment she shot Cyril, Audrey told the court she felt, quote, very dazed. The room seemed to go round and something snapped in my head and as I put my right hand up to my head, I heard a report of the revolver. I must have gripped it convulsively. Audrey said she had never contemplated shooting Cyril and, quote, 
I would give anything to undo what has been done. Crown Prosecutor Hubert Parker now cross-examined Audrey. Had she, he asked, been engaged to Cyril before she broke off her engagement with Claude Arundel? Audrey told him no. Yet a series of questions saw her admit that, yes, that had been the case, but she'd been justified in what she'd done. Her very first answer under cross-examination was a lie. Parker asked Audrey about Cyril's alleged collection of engagement rings. Her response, quote, I thought he was a rather queer kind of person to have rings, but I never bothered about it or asked any questions. Parker asked her, Did it ever annoy you? Not in the least. At least, not until the night of the dance when the penny had finally dropped for Audrey and she had realised, quote, no doubt these rings he got back from other girls. In what seemed a contradiction, Audrey also claimed it did not strike her as strange that Cyril should get rings back from other girls, but throw hers into the sea. Further, she was unable to explain why no rings had been found amid Cyril's effects after his death. Parker asked Audrey about a sailor she had visited. Quote, are you aware that your parents complained of your going to that man's ship? Audrey said she hadn't been. Parker handed her a letter. It was addressed to her and from an officer on the SS Cathay. Read that, Parker instructed. Audrey had no choice but to comply and recited a passage that read, I have heard from one of the fellows at the office of the P&O that your people had asked them not to give you a pass to come on these ships. Audrey then changed her story. I heard that, she replied, but my mother never made any objection. Audrey said her affections for Cyril had never wavered, despite everything he'd done, including raping her. Rape was then referred to by the euphemism seduction. Parker put it to her, quote, You knew that he was the cause of separating your parents, that he seduced you, wrote lies to your parents, and all within a month of your engagement, and yet you still desired to be engaged to him? Yes, she replied. Your mother had a pretty fair idea that he had seduced you, and yet she still made arrangements for him to meet you? Yes, for my sake. Unbeknown to your father, yes. The defence's story, repeated by Audrey, was that Cyril had become so enraged when she received a letter from her former fiancé, Claude Arundel, that he had raped her. Yet Parker's questioning elicited that while her supposedly insanely jealous secret fiancé Cyril was at sea, Audrey had frequently gone out to the theatre and to dinner with an older naval commander. The defence argued this was all above board and done with the consent of her parents. That might have been so, but Audrey's claim was that Cyril knew and didn't mind her publicly stepping out with another man. Given they were supposedly still engaged, Cyril had also made himself pretty scarce. 
Cyril did six-week round-trip voyages to Singapore aboard the Kangaroo, giving him 10 days leave in Perth. But, as Parker put it to Audrey, since May or June, he has made no attempt to see you, but you have made attempts to see him? Audrey said that was the case, but said their arrangement was that when the boat came in, she would go down or drop him a note. For an engagement, it seemed pretty casual. Parker pressed her on this. Since May or June, he has never voluntarily come to see you. Audrey explained, He asked me to see him, which is the same thing. He rang me up the last time he was in. He rang me at Surrey Chambers and asked me to come down whenever it was convenient. Parker pivoted to the night of the dance. Had Audrey taken a scarf back to the ball to conceal the revolver? Certainly not. Parker asked her to demonstrate just how she had wrapped the gun in the handkerchief. Audrey couldn't do it. Quote, I don't know how it was wrapped up exactly. Parker ventured, It is rather difficult to conceal. She snapped, No it isn't. How, Parker asked, had she carried her rosary to the cathedral? Audrey said she rolled it in a handkerchief inside her dress. Parker said, I see. Two handkerchiefs, a rosary rolled in one and a revolver in the other. Parker asked why Audrey hadn't thrown the gun away after her moment of peaceful epiphany at the cathedral. Audrey's reply, I had forgotten about it. Parker, and when did you remember you had it? Audrey, not until it went off. Parker again asked her to demonstrate just how she'd carried the gun in the handkerchief. This time, she rolled it up in the handkerchief and said, I think it was something like this. With it all wrapped up, how had she accidentally pulled the trigger? Parker asked, can you show us? Visibly agitated, Audrey replied, yes, easily, with my thumb or fingers or anything. Parker proceeded coolly, and if you had it wrapped up and pulled the trigger with your thumb, how would the empty cartridge come out? The ejected cartridge from the bullet that killed Cyril had hit a bystander in the face. I don't know, Audrey replied. She said it must have come out through one of the tears in the handkerchief. Parker asked why Audrey had touched Cyril on the shoulder with her left hand when she was right-handed. Audrey didn't know, but what she did know was that it wasn't because she was holding a gun in her right hand because she'd forgotten it. Parker then asked, and up to then, you had forgiven him all his snubs, or whatever you call them. You had forgiven him everything? Audrey answered, yes. You had nothing at all against him? No. Parker pressed. And because he said, pardon me, I am dancing, something snapped in your head? Audrey's reply, it was the shock of it all, one thing after another. Audrey said she didn't remember saying, I did it. Seeing Cyril on the floor, she said, had been like a bad dream. Before leaving the stand, in response to a question about her mental state, Audrey emphatically denied that she had been insane when she shot Cyril. Defence lawyer Haynes tried to establish the handkerchief had been in Audrey's hand and that she hadn't raised her hand to aim the gun. He called reporter Russell Sanderman, who had been at the dance and witnessed the shooting. Russell Sanderman agreed it was possible Audrey had only been raising her hand to her head. 
He also said he saw something white by her side. A month earlier at the inquest, Russell Sanderman had said he saw Audrey raise her hand, heard the gunshot and saw Cyril fall and then saw the revolver in her hand. Sanderman had provided a detailed description of Audrey's outfits, both the clown costume and the blue dress, but he hadn't mentioned a handkerchief or a scarf for that matter. Another journalist, Victor Courtney, editor of The Mirror, had arrived seconds after the gunshot and he testified he couldn't see all of the gun as there seemed to be something white obscuring a portion of the weapon. He also said he couldn't say whether Audrey had been wearing a scarf or not. Victor Courtney had also testified at the inquest and there he had made no mention of seeing something white obscuring a portion of the gun. Courtney's newspaper, The Mirror, despite having devoted thousands of words to Audrey and her alleged crime, hadn't reported anything of a handkerchief or a scarf until it reported this part of the trial. Now Audrey's mother, Jessie, testified. This time, unlike at the inquest, she was to be cross-examined. Jessie said that she and Audrey's father, Edward, had complained to police on the 14th of May 1925 about Audrey going to the boats, but that had been to prevent her from seeing Cyril. Though the prosecution didn't raise this point, that timing was curious because Cyril's ship, the Kangaroo, was on that date somewhere off the coast of far north Queensland. Even without this detail, Crown Prosecutor Parker was incredulous at Jessie's claim because she also testified she still arranged secret meetings between Cyril and Audrey. Jessie's response, quote, I did, but I thought in time she would drop him altogether, but she did not, and I did not know what to do, Mr. Parker. Even the judge intervened at this point to say he found this hard to believe that Jessie was simultaneously complaining to the cops about Audrey seeing Cyril while organising dates between them. Jessie denied what a policewoman had told Prosecutor Parker, and that was that the complaint she'd made had actually been about Audrey's friendship with the older married naval commander. Parker put it to Jessie that this policewoman had said she'd been following Audrey's movements for 12 months and she recommended Jessie turn her daughter out of her house. Jessie claimed the policewoman had only said this to Parker because she had a grudge against Edward. Parker put it to Jessie that she had also asked this policewoman not to say anything about this to Audrey because Audrey had a terrible temper. Jessie denied this and denied that Audrey had a bad temper. Now it was Edward's turn to testify. Under cross-examination, he was asked about the marital problems that had existed in his relationship due to his alleged infidelities long before Cyril came on the scene. Reports of one such scandal had made the Western Australian newspaper The Sun in January 1906. In his role as Clerk of Courts, Edward had been sleezing on to married women who came into his office, and he'd copped a beating from one victim's husband. His behaviour had been serious enough to warrant an official investigation, but now, in court, Edward denied everything 
saying nothing had ever been proved, that it was just talk and defamatory. If that was the case, why hadn't he sued or pressed charges against the husband who gave him a beating? Under questioning, Edward did admit that he had been separated from Jesse on grounds of cruelty before Cyril and Audrey's engagement. But he said this was by consent rather than court-ordered. Confronted with the fact that this court record had gone missing from Fremantle Court, where he was in charge of files, Edward said it was regrettably lost. He claimed that that didn't matter because the record was still in the charge book and also in the magistrate's notebook. But the point was his wife's signed complaint against him had, like Audrey's diary, disappeared. Questioned about whether Audrey had such a bad temper that she had once thrown a dish at him, Edward shrugged it off. Quote, Whether it came from Audrey or my wife, I don't know. Hearing her father say this in the court, Audrey hid her face and laughed. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Cyril Gidley had been shot and killed in front of hundreds of people. Then, thanks to the newspaper's intense interest in the case, he'd been character assassinated in front of the whole of Australia, first at the inquest and then at the trial. This character assassination carried out by Audrey, her mother and father, via testimony that was riddled with inconsistencies. On the afternoon of Friday the 9th of October 1925, the second day of the trial, defence lawyer Arthur Haynes launched into his summary. He said there wasn't a shred of evidence to suggest that Audrey had meant to kill Cyril. If she decided to kill him, he argued, she wouldn't have taken so long getting back to the ball. And why choose to shoot him on the dance floor in front of everyone? Why tap him on the shoulder? Why not just shoot him in the back? And he said no evidence had been given against the handkerchief. Audrey's very manner in the moments after the shooting, he said, also showed she was innocent. Quote, A girl in a frenzy of jealousy would be exultant, excited, and have a murderous gleam in her eye. Persons did not become dumbfounded at a thing which they had made up their minds to do. But they were in that state of mind when a revolver suddenly goes off and the result is that the object of their love has been killed. Haynes knew that these arguments were fairly shaky, so now he launched into the end game he'd been planning from the start. Quote, if ever there was a case which shrieked for the application of the unwritten law, then it was this one. Justice Northmore replied, we have no unwritten law here. Haynes then helpfully told the jury that leniency was usual in cases of child murder by young unmarried mothers and in cases where young lovers committed murder after being rejected. 
He even went so far as to quote from a book that said seducers should be shot. But beyond that, no matter what the jury believed, Haynes asked what good would it do putting Audrey behind bars. Quote, I ask you if this girl receives her freedom, is she a menace to society? Whatever your view of certain phases of the story might be, if your daughter's near relative had been guilty of this act, would you stamp her a murderess? I ask you, will you send this girl to the gallows on such evidence as you have heard, or will you look at it in a more reasonable light? Would you bring in a sentence of death which might or might not be commuted by the governor in council to perhaps life imprisonment? Haynes said it was the jury's duty to give Audrey the benefit of the doubt. Having pulled out all stops, Haynes finished with a romantic flourish. Quote, I will conclude by asking you whether this young flower is born to blush unseen and waste her fragrance on the prison air. Justice Northmore wasn't happy, and he told the jury so. Quote, I must say that I suspected all along that the introduction of so much about the treatment of the accused by Gidley was in order to base an appeal to what has been called the unwritten law. I want to say to you that the English law, which is very tender to criminals, knows nothing of the unwritten law, and your oath requires you to give your verdict according to to the evidence. But it might have been too little too late. Over the two-day trial, the defence had been allowed to paint a damning picture of Cyril Gidley as a man very much in need of shooting. The defence's other angle allowed the jury a way to believe that, even so, his shooting had been an accident though the gun had ended up in Audrey's hand because Cyril had made her so upset that she'd almost killed herself. So, in a roundabout way, Cyril had been responsible for his own death. Summing up for the prosecution, Hubert Parker reminded the jury that Cyril Gidley was dead and could not refute the allegations that had been made against him. Parker pointed out that the route Audrey claimed to have taken that put her at the church made absolutely no sense. If she'd really been going to the river to kill herself, she'd walked in the wrong direction. He reminded the jury that the police had not found the handkerchief at the scene and that in fact the handkerchief had not been referred to until Arthur Haynes had produced it in the court. Parker pointed out to the jury there was no evidence that Cyril had seduced Audrey or committed any of the sins alleged against him. And even if he had, the accused's own testimony was that she had forgiven him all his wrongs. Parker said that the case was simple. Audrey had shot him, but made no defence why she had shot him. There was no suggestion of provocation and to allay the all-male jury's fears that they may be condemning a pretty young woman to death, he said he had never prosecuted a case that had ended with the extreme penalty, 
And as all the jury members would have known, it had been more than 15 years since a woman had last been hanged in Western Australia. Parker said the jury couldn't just let Audrey go because they felt sorry for her. He asked, quote, Would they allow people who thought themselves wronged to walk into a ballroom and shoot people? Making his closing remarks, Justice Northmore again said the jury was not to consider the character of Cyril Gidley. He said that a good deal had been said to his disadvantage, but it had to be remembered that he was dead and no one could speak on his behalf. Admitting, quote, This may appear to you a very weird story, the judge summed up the evidence and told the jury there were three verdicts open to them. Manslaughter was not one of these. Manslaughter would only have applied if Cyril had been shot in the heat of passion or with provocation. The options open to the jury were guilty of willful murder, which meant they believed Audrey had set out to kill Cyril. Guilty of murder, which meant she'd intended to inflict grievous bodily harm that had led to his death. Or not guilty. At 6 o'clock on Friday the 9th of October, the jury took dinner and retired to consider the verdict. At 8.45, applause was heard emanating from the jury room. Audrey, looking exhausted, was brought back into the court and sat for several tense minutes as the jury returned and the judge, in his red robes, took his seat. The jury foreman said, We are agreed upon our decision. We find Audrey Jacob not guilty. Audrey Jacob had shot a man dead without provocation in front of hundreds of people, but she would now be free to go on with her life. Why did the jury acquit her? Haynes' defence had been a brilliant cloud of side issues that had poisoned them against Cyril Gidley. Audrey's testimony had been unwavering enough to create that all-important flicker of reasonable doubt. But the verdict may have been different if the letter Cyril had written saying Audrey had threatened to kill him had been ruled admissible. With the case over, Truth now reproduced the letter, remarking that it should be of interest, especially to any who knew the deceased's handwriting. Truth wasn't just talking about Cyril's friends, it was talking about everyone who'd followed the case. That's because an authenticated sample of Cyril's handwriting, a note he'd sent to Audrey's mother, had been widely published during the inquest. Putting that note side by side with the letter was to see they were identical. The verdict might also have been different if Cyril had been allowed to be humanised in the court. This could have been done by his uncle Herbert Gidley, who lived in Newcastle on the East Coast and who during the inquest had given an interview to the Truth newspaper. Herbert said that Cyril had been an ordinary young man who wrote him letters about his job, but who never mentioned any love interests, let alone fiancés, and he certainly hadn't mentioned anything about being a smuggler. Would Cyril have been likely to tell his uncle such things? 
Maybe not, but then again, he had apparently been quite willing to boast about such conquests and crimes to his future mother-in-law. And it was her testimony about this that had been in large part responsible for her daughter walking free. Nearly a century after Audrey shot Cyril, it is, of course, impossible to say for certain what happened and why. Legally, Audrey was not guilty of murder, and perhaps everything her defence had said was true. But the evidence and testimony, both for the prosecution and defence, along with other information such as Cyril's letter and Herbert's interview, are, I think, better explained by the following scenario. That is, Audrey's habit of seeing other men led to Cyril breaking off their engagement in February 1925. She was angered by this rejection and continued to try to see him when he was in port. These days, we might call it stalking. Facing further rejection, Audrey threatened to kill him and herself, a threat he didn't take seriously, which only served to further infuriate her. She would show him. Having sent for her gun, Audrey got rid of her diary and Cyril's letters, which could incriminate her because they'd show that she wasn't without fault in their relationship and that he'd rebuffed her repeatedly over the past six months. But Audrey cooled off and didn't go down to the kangaroo with her gun before the ship set sail for Singapore on the 20th of August. Maybe when Cyril returned from Singapore, she'd see him and be able to patch up things properly. Instead, she saw him at the ball, carefree and dancing with another woman. Audrey left. She went home, decided she would give Cyril one last chance. So she changed into her alluring blue dress, but she also took her revolver hidden in her scarf. Upon arriving at Government House, she hid the gun and scarf and asked her friend Annie to summon Cyril so they could talk. But the cad didn't come. Now Audrey would make him pay, and she'd do it in front of all of Perth. She would shoot him dead and then shoot herself, just as she'd threatened. Audrey retrieved the revolver and threaded her way to Cyril. She tapped him on the shoulder. She wanted him to know who was ending his life. Audrey pulled the trigger. But the look on Cyril's face, seeing him fall, seeing him bleed, she couldn't believe what she'd done. Audrey was shocked, paralysed, terrified. She froze and didn't shoot herself. In the hours and days and weeks that followed, the enormity of what she had done sank in and with it came sorrow, guilt, and remorse. Like she'd said, she would have given anything to undo what had happened. But Audrey couldn't. Cyril was dead, and if she admitted the truth, she would only be throwing away her own life, and that wouldn't bring him back. Defence lawyer Arthur Haynes told Audrey and her parents there was only one chance to save her from the death penalty or life behind bars. And that was to make Cyril into a villain, exaggerate his flaws or even fabricate them if necessary and make Audrey into 
his victim. This scenario is speculative, but I do think it better fits the facts than the defense's case. But whatever really happened, no one could possibly have imagined that within months, Audrey's name would again be in the headlines thanks to another sensational murder case. With tongues wagging about her in Perth, Audrey in early December 1925 sailed 2,000 miles east to Melbourne where she could stay with relatives. While Audrey's photo had been published in that city's newspapers, there hadn't been anything like Perth's media frenzy and she had a better chance of not being recognised on Melbourne streets. But her name? That would still make people's ears prick up. Yet Audrey wouldn't have to stay Audrey Jacob if she married. Audrey arrived in Melbourne bearing a letter of introduction from her lawyer, Arthur Haynes, to a man named Jack DeGarris. Mostly forgotten now, he was then as infamous as she was. Among other things, Jack had made a huge success of the Mildura region's dried fruits industry, set several early aviation records, produced the Sunraysia Daily newspaper and written a novel, a stage drama and a musical. But Jack also knew a thing or two about legal problems, suicidal excuses and being shamed in public. A massive business failure in 1923 had resulted in Jack's disgrace and financial ruin. So, in early 1925, he wrote a letter to his wife saying he was going to kill himself. An inherently theatrical chap, Jack then wrote another 70 suicide letters to friends and staff. These notes sent, Jack drove to a Melbourne beach, abandoned his car and clothes, and then most certainly did not wade into the waters of Port Phillip Bay. Instead, he tried to flee the country. But Jack's ruse was quickly exposed. One person said they'd seen him dressed as a woman on a train to Sydney. A week-long manhunt ensued and Jack was caught on a boat in New Zealand. The story goes that he was so charming, he sold land to one of the arresting detectives. By late 1925, even though Jack was trying to rebuild his reputation, he wasn't averse to taking Audrey under his wing. After all, she was a kindred spirit of sorts. Audrey enjoyed the social swirl of Jack's life, but there was no suggestion of a romance, and instead, she was soon involved with a young man from South Melbourne. As seemed to be the story of Audrey's life, they met, he proposed, she accepted, and then things went sour. It was reported that almost as quickly as he'd fallen for Audrey, this man, whose name never became public, came to believe that she didn't love him and only wanted a new surname. Audrey wasn't alone for long. On Boxing Day 1925, she met another suitor. At 49, Roger Duncan Sinclair was nearly 30 years her senior, but he had a lot going for him as an American executive of the New York-based General Electric Company. Roger was rich 
and he was soon sailing for home. Audrey reckoned it was love at first sight. She said that Roger knew all about the tragedy that had befallen her a few months earlier and that he wasn't troubled in the least by her past. Less than three weeks after they met, on the 12th of January 1926, at Melbourne's registrar office and in the presence of the American consul, Roger took Audrey as his wife and she became Mrs Audrey Sinclair. During Audrey's brief time in Melbourne, no one, or at least no reporter, had cottoned on to the fact that she was living in the city, that she'd been hanging out with Jack DeGarris, or that she'd just married a wealthy American. But during this period, Melburnians were keeping an eye out for an alleged murderer in their midst. They were on the lookout for 65-year-old glassware importer Henry Tack, who, on the night of the 15th of December, had walked up to the St Kilda home of a woman named Rachel Kernell, knocked on her front door, and then cold-bloodedly shot her five times. Henry and Rachel, who was a mother, a wife, a model, and his recent employee, were reportedly having an affair and it had gone bad, so he'd killed her. After a nine-day manhunt that had Melbourne on edge, pathetic old Henry was caught half-starved and half-buried in sand on the beach at Sorrento. After Henry Tack was committed to stand trial in January 1926, the newspapers reported that a mystery American couple known only as Mr. and Mrs. Clifford Clark, had become the accused murderer's secret benefactors, paying for meals and cigarettes to be sent into Pentridge Prison for him from a nearby hotel. Mr. and Mrs. Clark had sent him this message of encouragement. Courage, you are not alone. We are your friends. Henry Tack, he was as mystified as anyone about who these people were. So, Truth Newspaper investigated. Their reporter learned that Mr. and Mrs. Clifford Clark splashed around American dollars. A thorough search of passenger manifests and hotel registers yielded no record of these visitors arriving or staying in Melbourne. As Truth's investigators persevered, little clues added up to a hunch. The reporters showed Audrey's photo to two men who'd acted as intermediaries for the Clarks and bingo. Mrs. Clifford Clark, they confirmed, was none other than Audrey Jacob, who was now actually the newly married Audrey Sinclair. On the 24th of January 1926, Truth ran their sensational story under the headlines, Audrey Jacob's kindred soul stretches out to Henry Tack. Amazing story of beautiful girl's sympathy. Rolled into the article were all the details of Audrey's abortive engagement and her hasty marriage to wealthy American Roger Sinclair. Truth also reported that the newlyweds had sailed from Melbourne on the Demosthenes the previous week, bound for New York via South Africa and England. It was also reported as being telling that since they'd left Melbourne, nothing further had been seen or heard of Mr. and Mrs. Clifford Clark. 
in Sydney, Smith's weekly newspaper took aim at the truth of Truth's report about Audrey and Roger befriending Henry Tack. Smith's said their man had tracked down one of the so-called intermediaries who said he'd only said Audrey's photo looked similar to Mrs. Clark. But when Audrey and Roger reached Perth, for the Demosthenes had a stopover there, Truth had another scoop by none other than reporter Russell Sanderman. Russell Sanderman was the journalist who had seen Audrey shoot Cyril and whose uncertainty about whether she was just raising her hand to her head and whether she had a handkerchief had been important to her defence. Now, this reporter alone was welcomed into the Jacob family home in Fremantle to chat with Audrey while she did some washing before her ship sailed onwards. Audrey told him how her life had changed so wonderfully in Melbourne when she'd met Roger. Russell Sanderman asked whether Audrey and Roger had been Mr. and Mrs. Clark. Audrey didn't deny it, but also said she would not talk about it other than to say she felt very sorry for Henry Tack. Would her husband talk about Tack? asked Sanderman. Audrey said, quote, He will tell you he knows nothing about it. And if he did know anything about it, he would not tell you. It was a non-denial denial. As for whether Audrey would ever return to Australia, no, my husband might, but I am going away to live a quiet and peaceful life and have a good time. Given that Smith's Weekly had accused Truth of fabricating this story, it's tempting to believe that Russell Sanderman made up this exclusive from whole cloth. After all, Audrey and Roger would be on their way to New York before the newspaper was even printed. But if he was going to lie, why not go the whole way and claim that Audrey had confirmed that she and her husband had befriended accused murderer Henry Tack? The Demosthenes sailed from Perth on the 23rd of January 1926. In the coming months, rumours swirled about Audrey. Gossip said she'd found out that Roger was a bigamist and that he'd deserted her in South Africa, leaving her stranded and penniless. This wasn't true. Instead, having enjoyed South Africa and England for four months, Audrey and Roger arrived in New York on the 3rd of May 1926. While she was out of the public eye, if the Australian newspapers had kept paying attention to those around her, they might have got one more headline about Audrey being an unwitting angel of death. Faced with overwhelming evidence that Henry Tack had ruthlessly murdered Rachel Curnell, his defence, not dissimilar to Audrey's, was that he'd been provoked by her conduct, had only fired to scare her, and had only the haziest recollection of the event. Henry Tack was found guilty only of manslaughter and, due to his age and good record, received just a seven-year sentence. But he served only 18 months, dying in prison in September 1927 of blood poisoning. Jack DeGarris died even earlier. In August 1926, with debts of £420,000, he gassed himself. Audrey's parents also died in quick succession. Edward expired in September 1928 and Jessie died seven months later. As for Audrey, 
In the United States, Audrey and Roger Sinclair set about having a normal American life. They settled in Bridgeport, Connecticut. He continued working for General Electric and Audrey pursued her painting, exhibiting and selling her work and establishing enough of a career that she'd later be included in the who's who of American art. But Audrey's happy suburban life was rocked by a terrible suburban tragedy in November 1937 when a gas leak killed an entire family, two parents, three children, while they slept in a house immediately adjacent from Audrey's home in West Taft Avenue. Life went on, and in October 1939, Audrey became a naturalised American citizen. Then, incredibly, on the 15th of January 1940, at 3am, Audrey and Roger nearly died when another gas main leaked and filled their home with deadly fumes. They were made sick, but didn't require hospitalisation, spending the night in a hotel. Audrey would later sue authorities for $15,000. Roger died in 1944, aged 68, and no, Audrey did not shoot him. Audrey lived another quarter of a century, dying in Waco, Texas, on the 5th of November 1970, aged 65. The cause of death was listed as probable heart attack and her profession was stated to be retired artist. Audrey was buried in Santa Barbara Cemetery in California, sharing her final resting place with her husband, Roger. The inscription on their bronze plaque simply reads, There is no greater gift in all eternity than courage. Had Audrey been free to live her long life after getting away with murder? I think the evidence points to the answer being yes, and I think Cyril Gidley was denied justice. But there was also an unexpected outcome of her actions. Vivian Sinclair, the daughter that Audrey had with Roger. Vivian was born in October 1934. This little girl survived the gas leak with her parents and when her dad died when she was 10, it was up to Audrey to raise her. And Audrey raised a truly high-achieving woman during an era when being a career gal usually meant being a secretary for a year or two before becoming a wife and mother. In 1950, at the age of just 16, Vivian was accepted into UCLA. In 1954, age 20, she got her bachelor's degree majoring in Spanish and then followed it with a master's in Spanish-American literature two years later. In 1957, Vivian won a direct commission in the United States Air Force as a second lieutenant and was stationed in Germany and Spain. By now, she spoke not just English and Spanish, but also French, Italian, Japanese, German and Arabic. Vivian came back to America in 1962 and she made the San Bernardino County Sun newspaper on the 11th of December that year under a fairly ironic headline, Pistol Packing WAF Deployed. The article gives a terrific sense of her achievement, the sexist attitudes of the time and her determination to keep on keeping on. Quote, 
The sight of a pistol-packing WAF officer strolling in and out of a Key West, Florida hangar is now a common one. Captain Vivian C. Sinclair, an attractive blonde of 28, is an Air Force intelligence officer for the F-104 Starfighter Unit, which deployed here October 20 in direct response to the Cuban crisis. Her duties of transporting classified documents from command post to hangar and vice versa account for the 38 caliber pistol she wears in a shoulder holster on these occasions. As the first WAF to ever deploy with the fast-moving 479th Tactical Fighter Wing, the attractive officer comes to her job with a giant array of credentials, which include overseas experience in the intelligence field, a knowledge of six languages, a master's degree from UCLA in California, and a bone-deep insight into the Cuban crisis. Back at George Air Force Base, home station for the F-104s, she monitored all intelligence reports on this explosive situation from the very beginning. It is her job in Key West to brief pilots on the Cuban crisis with the aid of charts, photos and data compiled from interviews with Cuban refugees. The newspaper quoted Vivian on her unique status. I've always felt that in a situation like this, a woman could do the job as well as a man. It's sometimes a little inconvenient and a little distressing to the men, but they get used to it. Vivian went on to serve a tour of duty in Vietnam at the Tan Son Nut Air Base. This was a combat zone. Her decorations included the Bronze Star, Meritorious Service Medal, Air Force Commendation Medal and the Vietnam Medal of Honor First Class. On her return to the United States, Vivian became the first female instructor at the United States Air Force Academy, teaching all-male cadets Spanish in her role as an associate professor. The AP story and photo of her teaching students that found its way into American newspapers often had the headline, Yes Sir, Ma'am. This was 15 years before Kelly McGillis's role as an Air Force instructor in Top Gun was seen as a wow moment. In 1976 through to 78, Vivian served in the Pentagon as Executive Secretary to the Defense Advisory Committee on Women in the Services, reporting to the Secretary of Defense and advising on matters pertaining to women and the military services. In 1978, Vivian left the Air Force having served for 21 years and having reached the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. She then spent the next 15 years teaching languages on the United States' West Coast. Vivian's personal life appears to have been a happy one, with her enjoying a long marriage to a Canadian-Finnish professor of political science. Since she retired in 1992, Vivian and her husband have divided their time between Finland and Andalusia. It seems evident that Vivian has lived a long and full life, and as a teacher and female role model, has influenced the lives of countless others. Her life, at least, is the silver lining to the tragic event that took place on the 27th of August, 1925, in the ballroom of Perth's Government House. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. 
If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you'd leave a rating or review at iTunes. And if you'd like more information about this story, including getting a look at those letters written by Cyril Gidley, head to ForgottenAustralia.com or the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast. This show was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.